Today on Early Music Monday, we will have a fantastic interview with Chris Lowry. Chris Lowry is the conductor of Ensemble Altera and is a professional countertenor who sings around the world in opera and other ensembles. This is Early Music Monday. I hope everyone had a great weekend, had a chance to, and had a chance to, you know, think about and commemorate anniversary of 9-11 and pay their respects in, in their own way. Um, today's interview is with Chris Lowry. Chris Lowry is uh, a person that I was made aware of when I was actually just searching the web and found a recording of the ensemble that he conducts out in Rhode Island, Ensemble Altera. And I was immediately taken in by the professionalism of the group and their level of artistry, and it was amazing. And they have a really cool video out of The Fallen Soldier by Nigel Short and Mac Wilberg. Um, Tenebrae also has a great recording, but their, their recording is fantastic and... So I'll put a link to that video from YouTube in the show notes. Um, And it's a great kind of homage to, you know, soldiers who have fought in the past for our freedoms. And I think it's a really timely thing to to share that kind of on September 13th as as a way to remember and and you know, pay respects through our art form, which is choir. So, but that aside, Chris has some fantastic experience. Um, He studied over in England with Stephen Layton and has had great success in professional singing as a countertenor. So we talk a little bit about that and a little bit about his experience and how he got to where he is now and... He currently is in Germany doing opera stuff, and so, you know, we had an eight-hour difference in our uh, time zones for our interview. So, but you, I learned a lot in talking to Chris and, and found that it's really interesting to hear him as someone who studied in England and in, in America bridge the gap between those two things and find this kind of unique sound to the ensemble that is some hybrid of both and I think that that's a really amazing it brings kind of the best of both worlds together and so I hope that you learn a lot and enjoy the interview with Chris Lowry it's nice to meet you and I'm I did I just I just watched it was probably a week and a half ago now the uh that we remember is that that was that program was called correct yeah it was amazing i loved it it was so so powerful really clean sound really nice put together but really artful at the same time it was really great so congratulations i've had a chance to work with some of the things that require to put out and i'm equally impressed 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's it's a it's a slow work in progress, right? To to build the the organizational part behind the music, and so it's it's oh, yeah. fun. When did you guys start? So we started, um, like the fall of 2016, roughly. Just kind of a group of us just said, "Hey, why is no one singing Renaissance music here?" And so then we just. It was mostly me, and then I just kind of commandeered my friends, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, whatever." And then they's like, "Well, this is fun." <laughs> so <laughs> that's how it starts. And it, it, you know, it has to be a passionate enterprise first and foremost, doesn't it? I, mean, I my favorite meme throughout the pandemic was like a picture of like the eternal flames of hell in the background, and then a person in the foreground saying, "Anyone want to sing some palace?" I also saw that, and I was like, never have I related more to anything in my life. 100%. I was like, that is literally what I what I am doing tonight, like asking people if they want to sing Dallas in a parking garage while the world is ending. Uh, it's so real. It's so real. It's fantastic. Yeah, but, but it's a great litmus test to tell you that, you know, you're on the right track, I think. Well, that, I hope so. I think so. And, and we're, yeah, we're, we're keep, we keep building slowly and slowly and, and it's, yeah, and it's good. And it speaks also to the timelessness of that music, you know, of that for, for whatever, re and, you know, we could get into it, I'm sure, but there are specific things that just that music will stand the test of time forever because of the way it resonates with us as, as human beings. There's something about it that's transcendental or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was so, day, somebody, somebody was interviewing me about it, and I thought um, it's something to do. What is it about choral sound that's so kind of entrancing or transcendental, or however you want to talk about it? And my thought was it's some sort of extension of like the human social intelligence or the social consciousness, you know, and there's something, there's something going on there. Um, we all these different bodies and brains link up and, and are doing this imitation of each other and kind of sparring with each other. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think that's a really cool idea. Yeah. yeah. That's really awesome. So, so to, to speak about this then, cause I, I, I think it's, I always feel like I've met a kindred spirit when I can talk to someone the way we've just been talking in 30 seconds. <laughs> but so what took you, I would love to hear kind of your story of how you thought I like music to, I think I want to study this to, I think I want to do this for money to where you are now. You know, I'm sure that's a windy, crazy path, but you know, uh, I would love to kind of hear a brief overview or, or as detailed as you want. Well, I want to set the record straight, first of all, and let you know that I don't do it for money. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd pick I mean, up on the joke. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a career, but um, if you're looking to get into a career in music for money, you're probably on the wrong road. Um, I mean, there are, no. of course, acceptance <laughs> rules like that. But yeah. Right. Um, gosh, I don't know. That's such a That's such a capacious question, but I suppose... I hope it's not trite to say that that I feel like music chose me rather than the mm. other way around. Like it was just manifest in my person from like the youngest age, you know. And uh, sometimes in my life, 
I felt that that's a burden that I've been carrying around, but also what a tremendous gift it was because I had such clarity at a young age, like what was amusing to me and what was um, magical to me. And I knew that I had to get on some kind of path to follow that. It was like, it's like a sort of, it's a rush and it's a mystery. And um, I knew, knew that from a very, very, very young age and I just in some sense like that is not the case for everybody lots of people discover their talents and their um, passions very late in life some people don't ever discover a passion um, and so yeah I've been very conscious of the fact that that to know to know one's own mind um, and to fall in love with something so early in life is was a great blessing for me um, yeah it took wow. the form when I when I was a kid of just like wanting to sing all the time, you know, plain and simple. Um, and then um, I went on a long and Wendy road that, you know, started with formal music education in the public school system. Um, I was a clarinetist and I played in the band. Uh, and then I got kind of competitive with that. I did a bunch of um, sort of competitive youth orchestras and wind ensembles when I was in school. Um, I also sang in a Catholic church choir from the year dot, um, although the musical traditions were very different from the choral music traditions that I'm involved with now and um, in my teenage years, but uh, I like to call the music that I did growing up sort of like uh, adult contemporary music, but with sacred texts you know <laughs> nice yeah it's amazing that's the kind of vibe um so I, I i didn't grow up singing as a treble and um which which i guess had interesting implications for me when i started converting into um my adult voice which is countertenor um because most of the countertenors i know started as boy trebles not all of them but most of them so um it was a slightly indirect route for me into yeah. english Music, which I which I started doing when I went to college, um, and I joined the kind of local Anglo-Catholic kind of Anglican church music program in Providence, where I'm from and where I studied. And um, yeah, I, I experienced something like in in my high school years, my late high school years, I had something like an epiphany in discovering the whole English choral music scene. Um, and my encounter with it was just randomly channel surfing. And we had, um, this, this religious network, which maybe other people had across the country. I think it was a national network called uh, the eternal word television network, EWTN, which is kind of a Catholic, um, a Catholic spiritual channel with lots of different things, but for whatever reason they had, uh, a television program that came on at least once a week called In Concert, and it was hosted by probably a musicologist. She referred to herself as Dr. Jacqueline Leary Warsaw. And uh, she presented uh, pre-recorded, I guess, DVDs as, as concerts. Um, a lot of them were recorded by Brilliant Classics, which I think is a Dutch company. And there were helmet rilling things and mm. um, live oratorio creation, Bach B minor mass, that sort of stuff. But also 
a number of programs recorded by uh, college choirs at Cambridge. There was there was one by John, a couple by Johns, and some by Claire College Choir. And I I was sort of just like at first very confused about what I was seeing because it was it was like nothing I'd heard before. And right. then yeah, and then as soon as I kind of got over that, I was also kind of bewildered by the age of the people singing, and I sort of was like mystified by how 20 year olds could sing in a choir that, that sounded like this. And so that, that was a very like, I don't know what the term is, a, a Damascene, D Damascene kind of conversion moment for me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I kind of haven't looked back. I, I knew at that point in time, like that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to sing in one of those choirs and um, the little parochial Rhode Islander that I am, I kind of packed some bags and I went to Cambridge and knocked on Tim Brown's door, who was the director of Clare College Choir at that time and said, hey, I, I want to sing in your choir. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah talk about brass, brass uh, balls, but- um, Yeah, it's amazing. And I sang a bit to him and he said, um, yeah, marvelous, come and sing for my choir, but but you have to come after you've done an undergraduate degree in America, because uh, because you know British students are trained, um, they specify they they specialize into a subject younger than American students. So they basically have already had like one one year of university training in their subject before they turn up to university. So um, I didn't have I didn't do the A level system, and I really couldn't kind of compete as an undergraduate. Um, so so yeah, that was kind of like. I had a I had a goal all of a sudden and, and I and I went back and I studied uh, in the US. I went to Brown University for four years and uh, had an amazing time singing in, in the choir of St. Stephen's um, in Providence. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when that was all over, I, I did go as a postgrad and everything had changed in the years since. And I um, I ended up deciding that I wanted to sing at I really thought I want I wanted to have a six or seven day a week schedule rather than um, a, a reduced schedule at Clare. So I went out for the choir at St. John's, Cambridge, which was under the direction of David Hill at the time. Oh, but yeah. Now working with um, the Scola and the Vox Tet at Yale University. But back then, that was his gig. And, um, and he welcomed me into the choir, and I was all ready to go to Cambridge for two years, doing my master's degree and singing in the choir of St. John's. But um, sorry if this is too- No, <laughs> this is it. awesome. This is gold. This is gold <laughs> stuff right here. Yeah, and I, about, about a month before I was supposed to arrive, I got an email from the choir administrator saying, we're so sorry, but one of the choral scholars has decided he wants to stay on an next year. This person is now a friend of mine, so I forget. Nice. But, um, I <laughs> nice. was kind of devastated because I had like I'd won this kind of fancy scholarship, and I was you know picking up sticks and moving countries all because I wanted to go and sing in, a, in the choir. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me! I can't reverse course now. So I I was panicked, and I sent a I just sent an email to the incoming new director of music at Trinity Cambridge. Stephen Layton, and yes. uh, he, I didn't know much about him other than that. He directed an amazing choir that I was obsessed with at that time, Polyphony. Polyphony, yeah. And, yeah, um, and I had come to know about Polyphony because I had heard this 
probably a 2004 recording of the works of Eric Whitaker, who, you know, every good. Hey, you know, the I same CD talking. we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> the same CD introduced me to so many things. Cloudburst, you know, it, it was one of those. Actually, for many years, I had been a fan of his music. I discovered Eric Whitaker's music in wind ensemble because I played in this kind of really competitive slightly anxiety driving ensemble at the New England Conservatory called the Massachusetts Youth Wind Ensemble. And um, I I played for one year as the principal clarinetist in that. And um, we did one of his works called Ghost Train, oh. which is a, it's a really cool piece for wind ensemble. And it kind of, there, there's a bunch of like, you know, uh sound effect that the, yeah. the ensemble creates. It's like, you know. Yeah, I heard, I actually heard, I heard that, um, in London, uh, yeah. where they do where they do the the BBC um, the proms. proms every year. I can't remember what the name of the it was. I think I don't think it was the London Symphony Orchestra, but Eric Whitaker conducted it, and he did a Deep Field and some other like yeah. instrumental choral stuff. And he they did that piece, and so yeah, it's super exciting. So that's cool. It was, it was fun, and and that's kind of how I first encountered him, and then. I heard a great recording of his choral music by uh, by the folks at BYU. Um, that's kind of an iconic recording, I guess. Maybe is it late '90s? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so then I I obviously was intrigued to hear this CD that Polyphony made, and I got <laughs> this was back when CDs were mailed in the you know well before the stream era and I and I got the CD in the mail at my parents house and I put the CD in my car and I started driving and then the I re, I can remember I have a very strong memory of the track sleep coming on which everybody knows and loves and there's that kind of climactic crunch that happens where the two soprano lines are like a G against an A flat happens and obviously I'd heard the piece before but I had never heard the clarity of that little dissonance there. And I, I almost crashed the car. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Do not listen to Coral and drive. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I listened to that CD many, many, many times. And um, back then it was all kind of this distant thing. And, you know, over the years I've gotten to know many of the people that are on the disc as friends. And um, I think it was one of those, it was one of those, watershed moments for me because uh i didn't know it at the time i mean obviously the choir was incredible but it was at it was at the beginning of a i think a technological shift in mm. what was happening with choral recording and um you know that group of people hyperion records dave hinnett doing the engineering and adrian peacock producing they were daring to bring the microphones in closer and closer and closer because they had this incredible control now with new editing techniques and being able to kind of cinch together, stitch together, you know, 600 takes to make a track, you know, something crazy right. like that. Um, and you could, you could take the risk of having the microphone so close up, but the payoff for that was that the, the, the colors and the depth of the sound and the immediacy was just so mind blowing compared to, you know, what I had heard before that really, it was like, you're going to crash your car listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I guess um, to, well, I, so I guess to, to pause, I have a question. So when you're, when you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to sing before you even made that decision. What, what prompted you to say, Oh, because your your natural speaking voice sounds very much like a, a high baritone, low tenor 
kind of thing or just or low tenor, high baritone, whatever. So what what prompts you to say, I think I want to be a, an alto. That sounds way more fun. I've always yeah, been okay, intrigued fun. by that. Yeah, there's okay, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer, you're exactly right. I'm like a naturally a high baritone, low tenor, and and actually a terrible baritone and a terrible tenor. <laughs> and I discovered <laughs> I discovered that, you know, going through the transition um, with my singing teacher, it was like it was hellish trying to do either one of those things. And it was just it was always frustrating because it's like, ah, uh, you know, I'm not quite tenorial, but really I, I don't have any of the magic of a baritone either. Like, what is this horrible kind of mother region that I'm in? Of course, you know, I was like 16 or 17. And it ties in nicely with what I was saying before. I mean, I was discovering one of those recordings that I was listening to of Claire was, um, and they must've been lip syncing to it now that I think about it on DVD <laughs> because I have the CD. But they did a, they did a disc of Crystal um, they did, they recorded his tedium and Jubilate and there were a bunch of countertenor soloists on it. One of whom was Peter Gritton, mm. who, uh, who now he sings sometimes with Tenebrae and he takes the boys at, um, Westminster Abbey. And then the other one was Larry Zazo, Lawrence Zazo, who was kind of a few years ahead of me, another American who'd studied in, in the States, but then went as a postgrad to Claire. And sang with the choir there. In fact, I think he sang at King's first and then Claire. But um, and now he's a major kind of countertenor talent in Europe. But um, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was, what is this magical sound? What is this? I, I you know, I think the first thing I ever like kind of was um, blown away by was Peter singing the the last solo of the of the personal today. I'm um, about safe, O oh Lord. And I was just like, oh. I need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was kind of that, that put the bug in my ear. And then I had a secondary experience, a second kind of encounter with it. Um, you know, after, after the kind of, the kind of what do they call a gateway drug of Claire yeah. and then John's recordings, I started like listening more and more to English choirs. And I remember um, at Borders books, you could go in and they had, I mean, this is back when they, you know, borders. were selling physical CDs. They, oh my like, gosh. Yeah. I haven't seen a borders in forever. RIP. Um, <laughs> they used to have this, this kind of, they would display all the CDs for sale. And then they would choose like the editors would choose like 10 CDs of the month that you could sample. And uh, one, the choral CD one month when I was in the store was um, a King's recording under Cleobury and it was new. It was a Vivaldi Gloria and the, um, the Handel Ode for the birthday of Queen Anne. Yeah. <clears throat> which is the eternal source of light. And um, I didn't know the piece. I didn't know it was going to be on it. And I just, this came on and it was Robin Blaze, who I, of course, now know well, but at the time didn't know. And... <clears throat> um, that voice was just like, I mean, it was everything that I had admired in the other countertones I'd heard, but then it was even more, it was like such a focused, you know, brassy, beautiful, warm sound. And I- So I effortless. Still, oh yeah. And so I remember effortless. I just had the cans on and the board, and they must've thought, who is this weird child, you know, like here without his mother, like listening to this whole <laughs> 
you know, it was like, cause I, I probably didn't have the money to buy the CD, but I wanted to listen to it. And that's that first movement came on. And I, I just remember like I was on, I was on the cupboard where the CDs were. And I just kind of like slunk down the cupboard and I was just like, I melted listening to it. And I thought, Oh, M G. I am doing this. Yes, yes. That was a definite, I remember that was a definite clear moment. And, um, so I came to my singing teacher that I was, you know, at that time, probably we, we had given up on trying tenor and we were doing baritone. And um, this is an amazing person who directed a choral society in Providence. His name is Pierre Massey. And he, he came oh, through cool. the Westminster Choir. Um, and he knew that I that I wanted to be a countertenor, but he never had taught one and he was leery of it. And um, one of the things he arranged for me was he, he knew that I wanted to go to Cambridge um, and, you know, knock on Tim Brown's door and sing him an audition. And he said, well, you know, I have a friend here who was, who did the whole English choral scholar thing. You know, why don't we, why don't we have you guys meet? And he gave you some advice about, cause you know, when you, when you go and do an audition, um, for a choral scholarship in, in Cambridge and Oxford and other places, they, it's basically like a trial, what they call it choral trial. Um, so you know, nice. they, they do all kinds of things like, you know, you sing a couple of pieces and they do some sight reading and then and then oral training where, you know, and who knew I, I kind of wanted to get a glimpse of what what I should expect. And so I met this man, Norman Wiggett, uh, who was an English singer. I think he was a bass. He's in Canada now. But um, he said, well, right. So um, why don't we try this young man? Why don't we have you sing a Bach chorale, something very simple. I read this chorale, but would you read each of the lines in their given pitch? So he, you know, I sang the bass line where it was supposed to be and then the tenor line as a tenor. And then I got to the alto line and I sang the first couple of phrases and he said, stop, <laughs> you young man, this is your voice, you know. Um, and it was, <laughs> That's incredible. I just remember looking, yeah, it was, it really was. I mean, and I, and I kind of looked over at my teacher who was sitting at the piano in, in this church and I gave him this kind of conspiratorial like, mischievous look like now see like we didn't even tell this guy that i was playing around with my countertenor and he he sort of independently spotted it so with his blessing my singing teacher and i we got really serious about it and um so that's basically how it started and wow <clears throat> i started consuming all the recordings i mean listen 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 to recordings is the best advice that i can give to young singers um, right uh you know in those days it was all the old kind of I mean, they'd kill me for calling them old, but the old grades, you know, um, alongside Robin, I was listening to the other English countertenors, you know, James Bowman, Michael Chance, that kind of school. Um, and then, of course, it, it over the years, my tastes and curiosities expanded and expanded. But that was that sure. was kind of like how. It, I mean, that's um, really cool. So then, so then, my other question is, <clears throat> that's amazing, and I think so. This is related, but but it kind of shifts gears a little bit to, you know, when you're, when you're conducting, cause a lot of your time is spent singing, I assume, like you're doing opera circuit stuff all the time. And I mean, that's where you are right now doing Germany, hitting Germany, opera circuit, all kinds of things. But like when you're then conducting, I'm, it might be hard to kind of separate out for people who started with singing, but people like me, who and maybe other conductors who 
keyboard is their primary instrument and then voice is secondary. How do you think being a vocalist primarily, or I guess you have this wind background too, but vocalist primarily shapes the way you conduct an ensemble versus maybe how you would approach it or how you perceive keyboardists, not not to knock on keyboardists because they're brilliant musicians in their own right, but what, what do you think that brings to the table? I think about this a lot, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I did study keyboard as well when I was a schoolboy, but, you know, my keyboard skills are wretched and um <laughs> we can start a club then never played organ which i think is the typical um instrument for the, at least the church music choir director and i mean it makes perfect sense in lots of ways um and i've tried to think about the corollary for what it would be like as a singer to take a choir for like orchestral musicians and and you know for some reason, there doesn't seem to be quite so kind of narrow an expectation about what what the conductor's instrument is supposed to be. I mean, more often than not in an orchestra, he's probably a keyboardist, but he might as or she could easily be a string player or, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've seen percussive conduct and and but I don't know. It's this kind of we have this cultural history and I don't want to call it baggage because because it's it's a wonderful marriage in a way. Um, I'm somewhat relieved by the fact that I see more and more appointments of conductors of, of choral music who are themselves singers. So, I mean, I'm hoping that this is maybe the start of a, of a reconceptualization. You know, I, I think that you bring a couple of different things to the table that uh, maybe a keyboardist doesn't. Although, you know, as you said, a lot of, a lot of organists who take choirs are of course themselves singers too. So, right, right. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think of it as either or, but I guess it might be a shift in emphasis. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, some of it, some of it translates into the phenomenology of what's happening while I sing. And some of it translates into the conversations that I have with the singers, um, mm. which, which is, which is something that happens before and after the singing. And uh, so I, <clears throat> I think some of the conversations that I have with singers demonstrates that I'm sympathetic to the technical limitations of what they can do as singers and that um, I understand what they need uh, you know what what can be what can be compromised on does does the does every singer on this line have to sustain it does this vowel shape have to be identical at the top of the voice um, as at the bottom um, do I need them to give 100% all the time or can I find ways where you know resources are apportioned in intelligent ways vocally. I think it's a question that lots of conductors don't ever really think about. Um, and right. I think it builds, a, I think it builds a trust with the singer that, that if I then do ask for something that's a little bit um, pushing the technical envelope for them, they're prepared to give it to me because they know that I am facing the same limitations and I wouldn't ask for it if, if I didn't know they, if I wasn't confident they could accomplish it. Um, yeah. And I think that that makes a big difference in not just in, you know, the environment of rehearsal, but in the actual sound. Like there's something about that confidence that comes out in actual tone color. It's not I, I think that there's this sense sometimes that building confidence helps you sing better. And it's kind of almost this imperceptible feeling that the music is better. But I think it's it is scientifically 
different. Like you scientifically will produce better sound. And so I think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that this has nothing to do with being a singer, but you know, my, my kind of rehearsal slash podium technique is always, you know, um, to try whenever possible, which is almost always to be helping people find solutions to be encouraging and to help them be as relaxed as possible. Because you know, my observation is that the self-selecting crew of people that are coming to choral music bring with them a personality type, which is already kind of perfectionistic and yeah. you know, anxiety prone. And like, I don't need to add to that, you know, right. my job is to kind of relieve that wherever possible and know that, that, you know, people's own expectations are going to do nine tenths of the work for them, mm. you know, and what I need to do is rather than impose extra limitations on what they can do try to unlock possibilities for them you know but right. it is a conversation and it, it and there are transactions and sometimes it we reach a moment where i say i mean to speak of something as mundane as this comes up all the time but vibrato which right. which is uh it's a huge bugbear in the choral world um i think my singers would tell you that i um that i'm very judicious about wanting to ask for you know, less or more vibrato because because it's not always essential that a tone be completely straight. In fact, sometimes it's really dull if it is. Right. Um, but there are those moments, you know, for instance, if we were doing Eric Whitaker's Sleep, where, you know, either accelerating the vibrato to a very, very high speed or completely turning it off, which, which I kind of, that's how I could actually think of straight tone. It's actually like vibrato sped up so much that you can't even hear it. Right. Um, Mm. uh that for moments like that yeah i mean i i come to the negotiation table and say listen i don't care <laughs> if you spin on the phrase before i don't care if you spin on the phrase after but this is what i need of you in this phrase for this to work musically for instance as an example um yeah i think also there's like i i'm not even really 100 sure how this manifests but enough people have said this to me that i'm going to take it as true which is that um you know, I, I'm a kind of, I'm a vowel obsessed person. Mm -hmm. If you look at my score, it's like, it looks like, you know, an asteroid field of, you know, <laughs> beta markings and stuff. IPA symbols and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, don't even, like, I don't even speak IPH. So I've like invented my own kind of like gobbledygook. That's nonsense, amazing. Um, which somehow translates for, for the most part in the real world. But um but I also think that like even more important than what I write on the page and what we discuss, you know, kind of intellectually is when you're singing within the ensemble while you're conducting, you're able to kind of create sounds at the singers, um, create, you know, shapes, embouchure of the mouth, height of the mouth. Um, I'm able to kind of like an organist on the swell box or whatever, open and close, you know, the amount of tone and demonstrate that. And I think there's something like, you know, there's a huge amount that you demonstrate with the hands um, when, right. when you're on a, but there, but it's like, and I lose some of that quite frankly, when I'm singing, because there, there's only so much I can kind of divide my attention between my own need, my own needs as a singer and what the choir needs. Right. But I think that I'm, kind of there's this thing that happens where i'm compensating a little bit by demonstration and the choir responds to that yeah so i think that's, that's different in 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 another way from you know from a, a keyboardist who probably if he demonstrates doesn't demonstrate or she 
keep saying he, if she demonstrates yeah, yeah. where um, she's not demonstrating it from the perspective necessarily of a singer and cannot maybe actually approximate the sound that's in her head. Whereas right. I, I can sort of stop a rehearsal and sing a phrase at the singers and, you know, some amount is going to get lost in translation because, you know, I'm, I'm me and they're them, but there's a huge amount that like, Oh I yeah. On a page that I'm able to get across non-verbally. Um, so yeah, I think, I think those are the kind of the major ways, the major differences between what it's like to be, you know, conducting from my perspective versus another. And I don't think, I honestly don't think like, I can't sit here and tell you that one perspective is right because right. Some, of, some of my favorite choirs are, you know, led by people that, that themselves have no vocal ability. Um, so, yeah. you know, obviously it's different strokes for different choirs. And, um, but, but I, but I also feel like, you know, my own choir has like, like yours, I think it, it started as a passionate project and then over the course of COVID grew into a professional operation and, you know, our artistic standards overnight kind of went on and up, you know, went, went up and on ramp. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, and I think that part of that is because obviously, you know, I was, I had a different crew of singers, but, but also like, I asked myself, wow, how did we kind of like, how did we develop a sound so quickly that to me is so convincing in ways that, you know, I might've doubted was possible five, 10 years ago. And I think part of that equation is, is what I'm giving them as a singer. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree. And there's, there's so much nuance to that too. I mean, this could be several, we could, you could probably have an entire podcast about it because it's so nuanced in, in, in how you demonstrate and what's mirrored and what's, what cues are picked up on. And so I, I think it's, I, I agree with a lot of those sentiments. And I think that, you know, I've, I've sung under mostly conductors, all but one conductors who are primarily keyboardists. And then when I studied with Dr. Andrew Crane at BYU, then it was like, oh, he's a singer though. And 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 it was a night and day shift, not not from bad to good or good to bad, but in a, oh, this is like the other side of the coin that I wasn't getting. And so, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, everyone's lens kind of coming together and as many lenses as you can get, that's what makes your own lens then more unique. And I think that that's what shapes the sound subconsciously of your group is all of those little experiences. And I, and, and maybe beyond how either of us, but even you realize your clarinet playing probably plays into that, maybe it even on a super small level, but I, or a big level. So, so I think that's really cool. And and you said some things that I hadn't thought about. I hadn't thought about it in that way before. And I, think I also, that's really I also agonize over what it is that I'm lacking, you know, because right. because, I, because um, you know, one of one of my tendencies when I'm conducting from within the group is to kind of um, internalize other people's breath um, and mm. to think about and to think about their sound in terms of how long can they sustain these phrases? And sometimes as a singer myself, if, if I begin to intuit that the phrasing is not being achieved as well as I would like, I tend to compensate a little bit in the conducting by, by moving the tempo a little bit. Right. Um, right. And like, sometimes that's great. You know, sometimes that's, that's um, a smart way around the problem. And then other times more recently, I mean, I'm watching back the program that I conducted 
that you mentioned you remember. And a lot of times I think, hmm, you know, I should have just trusted the ensemble sound like 5% more than I did and just let that tempo just, just trust it that little bit more. And like, I'm on that journey right now where, and I hopefully will get somewhere further along this journey. Over time, <laughs> but like, just getting to that point where I have, you know, personnel who trust me and I can implicitly trust the personnel to like, just relax into things a little bit more and, and to just, to just trust that that line is going to be there because I, I'm, I am completely line obsessed and it's like, I want the energy to flow through the vocal line at all times. And if I, if I start to sense like, Ooh, energy here is dropping. I think it's only human to kind of not to rush it, but to kind of right. um, to give it, to give it energy by slightly increasing the tempo, which is, which, which works sometimes, but I don't think it's always the solution. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a fascinating thing. I've, I've only really kind of been doing what I'm doing in a serious way. I mean, honestly, I, I've, I've stood within groups and conducted them since I was in college, but yeah. in terms of like in this very focused way with a, you know, a bunch of people in a professional ensemble setting, I've been doing it a year. So, right. um, so it's very kind of like, I'm super experienced in some sense, but in another sense, it's like, I haven't necessarily held myself to this standard consistently like this. Right. And so, you know, I think as time goes on, I hopefully will be figuring out the limits of my technique and, and trying to surpass them as best as I can, you know? Oh, I, th and I think you totally will. I think it's amazing. Um, so my, 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 um, to, to kind of wrap it up just a little bit, is if it, so I, even though this podcast is called Early Music Monday, I, I just it's mostly just about choral music, and then kind of showing how that music is still relevant, and so you know, um, and I think that it's completely relevant always. But what when you're so when you're programming, or or when you're when you approach, I I get okay, when you're programming as a conductor or when you get the program in front of you as a singer all the music and you and you see things what are what are some musical elements i guess if we take a scientific approach that you find are in early music that are timeless like what makes it timeless to you I mean, I, I guess it depends how you define early music. I get when my, my brain immediately goes to, um, you know, just to circle back a little bit to my story, another kind of um, early encounter with, with British choral groups. And that was in the form of Talus Scholars. Yeah. I remember one of the, I bought, there was like a Philips CD collection of like the best of the Talus Scholars. And this had to be, it was like a three CD set and it had to be 19... 99 2000 kind of time and i i remember buying the disc and my mother worked in a bank as a secretary so i like for some reason turned up to her workplace her boss was away so i went into her boss's office <laughs> nice and uh was like <laughs> on his computer and i stuck one of these cds in the computer and um trying to remember what was on that CD. It was definitely Allegri Miserere with Debbie Roberts singing the singing the high C, and it was yeah uh, the Pope performance mass, the Palestrina, that kind of stuff. You know, all their golden hits. Yeah, and I and I can distinctly remember, 
like simultaneously being blown away by the sound, but also after I listened to it for a half an hour the first time, I had a splitting headache. Right. <laughs> um, I couldn't reconcile that in my mind for a while. I was like, why is this both so pleasurable, pleasurable and painful? <laughs> <laughs> so painful. real. It's like, and, and, and I liken it a little bit to like discovering wine or coffee or anything that like on first taste is completely objectively unpleasant, but compelling somehow yeah. at the same time. <laughs> And you need more of it, and every sip you take of it, the better it tastes. And and that was kind of like what polyphony was to me. Um, and certainly in the hands of Peter Phillips, who had a particular, very particular approach to polyphony, which he calls himself orchestral, you know, right. which is this very never less than mezzo forte kind of, I don't know, some people would call it dentist drill sound, but I, I don't hear it that way. I hear it as like refulgent and full-toned and, you know, completely earthy and full of body and um, yeah. platforms on this wonderful bass sound. Um, yeah. You know, people, people think that the Talos scholar sound is all about the treble sound. And of course it is. But to me, it's just more about how the men are like letting it rip the bass. Oh yeah. Like, so out. hardcore, like so yeah. hardcore is the only word I can think of just yeah. rocking out down there. I mean, I could listen to Rob McDonald kind of like, you know, lay down a bass line until the end of time. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> For me, like what was so attractive in the end about, you know, quote unquote, early music and polyphony and why I never tire of polyphony. Of course, I love singing Baroque music as well. You know, everything right. from Monteverdi, where I am at Handel, there's 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 a treasure house of, of things to, to love there. But there's something about polyphony and in its complete stripping away of all of the excess material and just leaving the sound of the human voice, hmm. like bare and bald, naked. And then that kind of coupled with, with a stacking of the, of the human voices on top of each other. And of course, counterpoint most of the time, not always, but um, there's something about that, that like just never gets old. And if, if you take, if you take Renaissance polyphony when it's not contrapuntal, you know, um, when it's when it's just about kind of stacked voices, so much of that sound of just here is the the raw naked power of the radiant human voice, right? Imported into music being written today in the choral music context, and and and, and I think there's a an obvious through line between those two things, which is which is just like human timbre, yeah, unleashed. Um, you know, um, obviously people have different ways of unleashing that, but like, I think that's why, uh, I think that's why the music that's being written with that kind of vocabulary and that fingerprint is having a huge moment and, and why it's having a huge success right now is related to why this kind of early music, I think will never fully remove itself from the scene because it's like, it's revealing something so kind of minimally, beautiful but truthful that like you, you there's no kind of there's no decadence about it there's no ornament about it it's it's so raw you know yeah and um and like i i don't think that's what people initially think when they when they're like oh we're going to a we're going to a concert of renaissance polyphony renaissance polyphony i think that they kind of you know they get it confused with like the whole um the, this sort of concert going tradition of the 19th century which is like 
or an 18th century too, which I guess is about, it's a social event and it's a place to be seen and it's, it's about right. refinement and it's about decadence and all that. Not to me. I mean, right. That's know, interesting. Um, not to me. To me, it's about something that's like almost embarrassingly raw that like, yeah. if you're not, if you're not careful, you might lose control of your emotions and, um, just get swept up. It, you know, I, 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 I do get swept up in it. Um, because you know. it's so primal, like there's, like you said, yeah. and I think primal is, and and it it it, and it, you know, I t I talk to my music theory class a lot. Oh, I have been over the last couple of days about like, instead of starting with common practice this year, we started with, like, the elements of music. Like music is pitch and time, and that's it. Like, and then how you organized sound, frequency, and time. So, and then now we're getting into chant, and then we're going to get into, you know, monophony and homophony and polyphony, and you get into all those things. And I think that when you realize there are, like, frequencies that our brains love, that there is this frequency that – and this organization or choreography of frequency that we just latch onto. And I think when you remove all of the, I think just like you said, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way of removing the decadence of the concert going experience and you remove the ornamentation, then that really is all that's left, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we were probably doing one form or other of this, like all the way back to the caves, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Um, it's just like, it's kind of all you need. I mean, somebody would be singing a line and somebody else would be harmonizing to it or singing along with it or singing just after it or whatever and seeing what combinations of sounds came out of that. But um, yeah, there, there's part of there's part of that, which is just that that's the kind of timeless element of it that I think it's never going to leave us because I mean, even if we were to lose the entire repertory, like right. You could burn the whole library. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tragically. I think it would it would reinvent itself in a way oh, that I'm yeah. not sure that I'm not sure that like we would re like that there would be another Bach. But I think that we would find um we would find our way back to to doing that because it's like something so internal to our nature. I guess. Yeah. I think wow, yeah, that's really profound. Cool. Well, Chris, I could talk to you all day. There's all kinds of cool thoughts I had. There's like yeah, seven, like eight tangents of like, well, we should talk about this. Well, we should. So I would love to have you on again sometime, yeah, a couple yeah, months absolutely. in the future. And this is and, gonna. It's, I feel. I feel as if I've spoken only about myself. <laughs> but I guess that's what you do with the news. And I, I much prefer to like be the one doing the interviewing. So. <laughs> it's good to switch roles then. <laughs> but then. We'll, uh, it, and if there's something that Ensemble Altera is doing in the future that you think would be really that that I don't, I don't have a huge audience, but people out west would appreciate, let me know in advance, and I can have you on again, and you can promote it, and we can talk about maybe some of the specific pieces, and I I love to to do that kind of thing to just help yeah, spread that. So planning a program for the first week of December so I don't have any time before that we're doing this program called um, it's called we watch and welcome and oh great uh, it's Britain ceremony Charles but then it's mm. I was really keen to to it's all it's all treble repertoire um, and cool. we're doing music by six women uh, which I, which is pretty cool one of one of the pieces is um, I, I actually got tipped off to, 
to it by one of the singers that did the We Remember Her. Her partner mentioned it to me. It's um, Britain's student who's actually um, Gustav Holst's daughter, Imogen Holst. Oh. Wrote, she wrote another SSA with harp piece called, um, uh, oh dear, I'm going to script the name of the piece now. Um, Welcome Joy and Welcome Sorrow. And it's a song set. It's a song cycle. Um, so we're pairing it with that. And then, you know, a bunch of other uh, Christmas Adventy Marian music by by female composers and the Britain Samuel Carroll. So cool. It's, it's going to be really good for Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, sometime late October, November, if it's not too crazy, I'd love to, to have it on. If you're going to stream it, we can we can share that yeah, link with people. We'll so make a video. Make tickets I, think, and... I think we're going to, it depends how much funding we get for it. <laughs> sure. But um, right. I think we're going we're gonna to film at least the ceremony part of it. So cool. Okay, and to to end today's episode, I just want to play the Fallen Soldier performed by Ensemble Altera. Again, a link to the YouTube video of this performance can be found in the show notes and on Ensemble Altera's website. Um, I just, I have a great love for this country and 9-11 has a special place in my heart and... I think that it's really important that we remember what came about from 9-11 in terms of the citizens of this country coming together. And I think that this piece and choral music has a great power to bring people together instead of dividing us. And so I, I think, I hope that you'll listen to this and remember kind of the thoughts and feelings that you had on September 12th, September 13th, September 14th, uh, 2001. Even if you're not a citizen of the United States, there's there's something that kind of brought the entire Western world together, and the world is different now. And this is... Um, choral music throughout history has been something that's bigger than the art form themselves itself sometimes. And so I think this is one of those moments. And so here is, while it's not a Renaissance piece, it is still um, timeless in his own right. And so here is Ensemble Altera performing The Fallen Soldier by Nigel Short and Mac Wilberg.
Thank you for tuning into the show today. I had uh, a really great time talking with Chris and learning from his experience and kind of getting his perspective on, on all things, particularly early music, obvi. If you like the show, I ask that you please help us out by giving us a five-star rating, write us a review, uh, share the podcast with anyone who you think you'd enjoy it, and check out Sound of Ages' website for upcoming events and news, social media posts. Also give Ensemble Altera a great listen and go visit their website. Links to their website will be listed in the show notes as well as links to some of their videos. So go check them out and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.